Welcome to the Complexity Premier Podcast. I'm your co-host, Yingyi Ancheng, Portfolio Management Director at Coolabar Capital. And as always, Yingyi is joined by Christopher Joy. Uh, I'm the Portfolio Manager at Coolabar Capital Investments. And let me say Happy New Year to all of our uh, listeners. Uh, it started off very positively and it's exciting to once again engage with you. And today we're going to talk about the 2019 return wrap-up current ideas in fixed income, the coming of a dangerous decade, the rise of zombie companies, and Chris's lunch with one of the world's biggest hedge fund managers. So Chris, why don't you talk to us about the 2019 return performance and some of our best ideas? Yeah, sure. Happy to do so, Yingers. And of course, we probably have some new listeners in this episode of the podcast because right at the end of 2019 in December, the $60 billion multi-manager, Pinnacle Investment Management, uh, acquired one of our shareholders' stakes in Coolabar Capital. So Angela Bennett, who is an iron ore billionaire, owned a quarter of Coolabar Capital and had done so uh, since 2015. And in December, she sold that stake to Pinnacle Investment Management. Now, Pinnacle has 15 fund managers that it owns uh, minority stakes in. We are now part of that stable, which includes the likes of uh, Antipodes, Hyperion, Metrics, ResCap, and many other incredible uh, managers. Uh, very, very excited to partner with Pinnacle. We're actually approached by quite a few different institutional third parties. As far as we're concerned, nothing changes. So the team stays the same, the process stays the same. Our 25% shareholder has just shifted from a Perth family office uh, to Pinnacle. But we've been very, very impressed with what we've seen of Pinnacle since we first engaged with them. And it's a real privilege, again, to be part of their uh, exceptional stable. So I guess with that in mind, it's also worthwhile just providing a little bit more of a primer on what we do at Call of Our Capital. Regular listeners know that intimately, but I'll recap some of that introduction in the context of discussing uh, the 2019 performances you suggested, Yingers. So um, I guess we could start off, uh, it was obviously a very, very good year for duration. The Composite Bond Index which is uh, an index comprising fixed rate bonds, not floating rate bonds, that finished 2019 up 7.3%. We run a strategy called the Coolabar Active Composite Bond Strategy, and that is benchmarked against that index. We run it only for super funds. Uh, It's an institutional product. It is not publicly available, and that returned 11.5%. So it beat the index by 4.2% in 2019, and I believe that ranked number two of all the fixed income fund managers in the Mercer survey in 2019, and I think it ranks number one or thereabouts over the last two, three, four, and five years in that Mercer survey. So that's a long duration strategy that we run for Insta clients. We also manage a daily liquidity and zero interest rate duration, so floating rate as opposed to fixed rate strategy, and the uh, highest returning variant of that strategy that is available to the public is called the Long Short Credit Fund. And that returns 7.1% after fees. Uh, again, no duration, so all floating rate in 2019. The volatility was less than 2%. That's after the lowest publicly available fees. In addition to our active composite bond strategy and long short credit, we run for beta shares the active Um, hybrid ETF product. It's actually the fastest growing active ETF in Australia. And the ticker is HBRD. And that was up net of fees 6.8% in 2019. 
uh, again with volatility under 2%. The average credit rating in our composite bond strategy is AA. The average credit rating in our long short credit strategies are uh, I believe at the end of December was also around double A. The average credit rating in that active ETF strategy, HBRD, was triple B, so investment grade. And then finally, we for uh, the public, uh, we run two daily liquidity and also zero duration cash plus products. So long short credit, HBRD, and these two products, uh, Smarter Money Active Cash and Smarter Money Higher Income, both situated in the FE Fund Info Cash Enhanced Sector. Uh, are zero durational floating rate strategies. Our two cash plus strategies, net of fees, uh, net of retail fees, returned three and 3.4% after those costs in 2019, and their volatility was less than 1%. Uh, in 2019, the Ausbond floating rate note index returned at 2.90%, and the RBA cash rate returned 1.2%. So we pretty much covered most of the fixed income market by spanning cash, floating rate notes, and fixed rate bonds. Now, of course, I will emphasize past performances of no guide to future returns. Please read the product disclosure statements. Please review all the risks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Listen to the disclaimer at the end of this podcast. You shouldn't rely on any specific performance periods when making decisions on these sorts of solutions, but that was what happened in 2019. Coming back to Coolabar, so we have 22 full-time executives in our team, 10 analysts and four portfolio managers, so 14 people on the investment team, many of them with deep academic backgrounds, um, PhDs and university medalists. And our process is quite differentiated and unusual, both in Australia and offshore. A quick summary is that we apply internally built quantitative bond valuation models to revalue every liquid and tradable investment grade bond on earth to find basically cheap securities that are mispriced after controlling for their various factors. So they're mispriced in credit spread terms and which have a high probability of generating future capital gains. So we're really focused on capturing those capital gains which augment uh, the interest rate paid on the bond or the yield on the bond. The investment grade credit market's actually probably bigger than most folks realise. It's actually $1 trillion of investment grade credit issued in Australia or issued by Australian companies overseas. In total, global investment grade credit we estimate is around $22 trillion. Uh, and we trade in all global markets and hedge back to Aussie dollars or US dollars depending on our clients' requirements. Uh, It's also a very inefficient asset class. Uh, It's dominated traditionally by more buy and hold and passive managers, and it's extraordinarily dark. So, you know, in January alone, we probably traded about $2 billion of bonds just in this month, uh, in the first 20 or so days of the month, and none of the prices or volumes of those transactions are publicly reported anywhere. And the opaque nature of the asset class, coupled with predominantly passive managers, even if they might uh, suggest they're active. You know, often I think, uh, or more often than not, you really see active managers giving different forms of beta or risk. Uh, so that might be interest rate duration beta, credit beta, or illiquidity risk. Combination of that um, dark asset class and passive investment styles means that the price discovery process in investment grade credit is unusually slow. And combined with the post-global financial crisis constraints imposed on market makers and broker-dealers and banks generally, there have been quite attractive opportunities that have been liberated for sophisticated investors like ourselves. We also have pretty high success rates um, in terms of the individual transactions. So when we look at our last 9,000 bond sales, our win ratio, which is defined as if we buy a bond, sell a bond, do we make money or lose money, is around 99%. And we're able to generate credit alpha or capital gains about 86% of the time. And 
these gains obviously um, represent that mispricing opportunity that we've discussed thus far. Talking of mispricing, Zingers, one of the interesting ideas that we've recently been looking at is just the bifurcation in credit markets. So not many people realize that when you speak to institutional investors and they talk about credit, I often hear the refrain, oh, credit spreads are very tight. That analysis is actually pretty flawed because the global credit market, that $22 trillion market, is actually broken up 50-50 between financial credit and non-financial or corporate credit. In fact, there's slightly more uh, financial bonds on issue than uh, corporate bonds on issue. And if you're thinking of the corporate bond market, the refrain I referred to is absolutely correct. So we recently looked at the credit spreads today in January 2020 for corporate bonds and compared them to the spreads in June 2007. And it's pretty scary. We basically found that um, looking at the biggest corporate bond market in the world, which is the US corporate bond market, whether we looked at high grade credit, so AA rated bonds or triple B rated bonds or A rated bonds, or if we looked at junk bonds or high yield bonds, um, so rated below investment grade, so taking, for example, double B rated bonds, credit spreads today are actually lower than what they were in 2007. So to give you some examples, triple B corporate corporate bond spreads in the US today are around 129 over cash, whereas in 2007, they were 162 over cash. High yield or junk bonds in the US today are paying 189 over cash. In 2007, they were paying 218 over cash. So that's pretty, um, I think, disturbing, especially when you account for the fact that US corporate leverage as a share of GDP is actually above where it was in 2007 and has been increasing uh, since the idea of the crisis. So on the one hand, you've got record levels of US corporate leverage. On the other hand, US corporate credit spreads, whether whether we're talking about US high yield or US investment grade, are both inside or lower than they were pre-crisis. Scary stuff and absolutely validates a view that high yield corporate credit is heinously expensive or traditional corporate credit is expensive. Then when we look at financial credit, um, it's a very different story. So if we look at the major banks um, as an example, senior bonds, subordinated bonds and hybrids, what we find is that spreads today are between two uh, and eight times wider than they were in 2007. So take major bank senior bonds, AA minus rated. Today, they're paying roughly 75 over cash. In 2007, they were paying nine over cash. Or if we take um, you know, subordinated bonds today, they're paying about 168 over cash. In 2007, they were paying 35 over cash. At the same time, globally, banks have delevered. In Australia, the deleveraging has been particularly sharp. So we've basically seen a, a halving of risk-weighted leverage on balance sheets. And we've also seen a huge increase in bank risk aversion. That's bad for shareholders, bad for equity. It's um, very good for credit generally and bondholders such as ourselves. So I think there is this schizophrenia in the uh, global credit markets. Financial credit looks generally quite cheap. We haven't seen a huge compression in financial credit credit spreads since the uh, GFC started. In fact, they've tracked sideways with periodic shocks. The shocks in financial spreads in 11-12, so 2011-12, were actually in some cases, for example, senior bond markets, worse than what we saw in 08-09. And the shock in 15-16 for subordinated debt in financials was as bad as what, what we saw in 08-09. In contrast, corporate credit, high-yield corporate bonds have been on a tear, and those risks seem to be just as bad as they were in 2007. Yingers, what do you reckon? Well, actually, Chris, you wrote a very interesting article recently on the coming of a dangerous decade. Can you explain a bit more about what you meant by that? 
Yeah, Yingers, sure, happy to oblige. And I guess I came to thinking about the forthcoming dangerous decade from a somewhat curious vantage. Um, we had been evacuated from the south coast of Sydney um, due to the bushfires. In fact, we actually ended up being evacuated twice. And at one point, unfortunately, we were trapped and all the roads were shut uh, in Jarvis Bay. But nonetheless, we were <coughs> relocated to Palm Beach for something of a joy family reunion. And as a fund manager, a uh, altruistic and munificent fund manager, I was naturally doing my bit to save humanity, whipping up the uh, search and rescue drone that some readers slash listeners may recall. Uh, and I was whizzing up and down the coast hunting for sharks, zeroing, zeroing in on surface and swimmers. And during one flight, I received a call from uh, an individual who I can't name, but I like to call him uh, the waterboarder. He's a bit of a muse in some of my columns, the AFR columns. And he's a mentor of sorts who also chairs a multi-billion dollar hedge fund, amongst other things. And this individual, the waterboarder, had been alerted to my arrival by his wife. So he has a place at Palm Beach after my drone had actually asked her where her husband was through the emergency speaker system, which you can actually hear from about 500 metres away. It's a pretty fancy drone. And uh, the waterboarder rings me and I answered the the call and he kind of says in his thick uh, Lebanese Australian accent, bro, you're going to find more sharks on land than in water in these parts. And of course he was right, because only uh, a few metres away from this gnarled human equivalent to a great white shark uh, were the likes of VGI's Rob Luciano and Molus's Andrew Pridham stealthily surveying their domains. And I think that when it comes to investing, you're hard-pressed to find you know, many more well-honed killers than this uh, superficially chummy triumvirate, excuse the pun, pun yingers. So anyway, as I continued back uh, to my search for waterborne sharks, the drone temporarily lost radio contact. And at that juncture, the artificial intelligence in its processor, uh, the AI immediately kicked in. And this uh, UAV flew itself in a perfectly stabilized arc back to the base and, and it landed safely. And AI is so good now that scientists are developing drones with superior shark spotting capabilities to the human eye. And you know, in the context of the dangerous decade, I think that in the next 10 years, we do face a possible specter of the so-called singularity, quote unquote, in which AI gains self-awareness and actually exceeds human intelligence, following which it is um, projected to recursively self-improve its capabilities uh, until the gap between uh, man and machine is massive. Now, we don't know whether this is going to transpire, and there's a kind of rich computer science and futurist debate as to the probabilities around these different paths. But if uh, Elon Musk is right, this could be a Terminator-like extinction event for our human race as the machines seek to eliminate us or subvert us into organic slaves. Now, Ying, is my own view is that a more likely outcome than this terrifyingly binary hypothetical is a complementary fusion between AI and Homo sapiens in what will be hopefully a profound evolutionary step towards a hyper-intelligent Homo digitus. And I guess if you can't beat the machines, let's become one. A parallel innovation that I was thinking about, and I hope he's right, um, is uh, Professor David Sinclair's lifelong effort to, th- to thwart the disease um, known as aging by actually reversing DNA decay and finally giving humans some semblance of hope of living for hundreds of years. 
Now, I've interviewed Sinclair, who's a professor at Harvard and an expert in genetics, uh, and he's previously told me that the first person to live to 150 years has already been born, and he's uh, allegedly shrunk mice aged three years to just six months old in his labs. As with the singularity, this could be revolutionary in both positive and negative ways. And if you dwell on these tectonic shifts for any period, I think why why one's mind inevitably gravitates towards the Middle Kingdom. And many seem to have forgotten that in the 1980s, large texts were written about the rise of uh, so-called Pax Nipponica, uh, or Japan, which uh, appeared to set uh, or appeared set to inexorably supersede Pax Americana, as it was known, or you know what others call U.S. hegemony. Yet Japan's surreptitious slide was galvanized by two factors. First, I think a cultural resistance to exposing its economy to creative destruction, uh, which is the most powerful propellant of productivity and growth. Japan embraced alternative paradigms like lifetime employment, which is anathema to the disruption inherent in real capitalism. Uh, I think a second impediment was Japan's monoculture that rejected immigration and propagated a rapidly aging population, which meant that the number of people living in the country started declining by the early noughties. And there is no greater killer of aggregate demand than disappearing your people. Both problems afflict our North Asian trading partner. In my view, China's statism prevents it from productively innovating, which the 1987 Nobel Prize winner Robert Solow demonstrated is the primary source of long-term prosperity. I believe China also suffers from the consequences of its single child policy and opposition to a multicultural society. Indeed, the uninterrupted 28-year expansion of what the economist once coined the wonder down under, I reckon Yingers can be partly attributed to one of the fastest population growth rates in the OECD, built on the back of not family fecundity, um, as is sometimes assumed, but rather our exceptionally strong migration. And people forget sometimes that we are actually the most multicultural country in the developed world, with more than 30% of our residents born in another land. And that's notwithstanding you know, that popular Aussie stereotype, which is um, quite xenophobic. Massive endowments of natural resources have not hurt either. If I'm wrong and China is able to overtake the US in economic and military terms, then we should prepare for great power conflict. When all is said and done, these are um, Inga's two fundamentally incompatible worldviews. View, world One seeks unrelenting dominance and control to secure its own survival, while the other, uh, the US, preaches liberty, freedom and democracy, constrained only by the need to combat national security threats that imperil these ideals. Ironically, however, the modern American miracle is itself, I reckon, being threatened by another ascendant form of statism via that new paradigm known as QE to infinity. Quantitative easing is increasingly becoming the policy reflex of first resort. When markets signal that bad businesses should die and the associated jobs have to go, the central bankers' myopic response is to impose their own version of reality by hijacking the process through which freely functioning markets clear and allocate scarce labor and capital. They do this by buying all manner of assets to fix their own unilateral prices because, of course, the omnipotent central bank knows better than the collective wisdom of crowds. The most potent iteration of this policy is acquiring public sector bonds 
to artificially manipulate the supposedly risk-free discount rates that are used to price all privately traded assets and in turn loosen the fetters on fiscal policy. As the RBA's governor, Phil Lowe, recently remarked, this is preferable to buying other assets because fudging discount rates gets into every quote-unquote nook and cranny of the financial system. It is a new form, in my view, of public sector hedonism. Rather than waiting for the long and variable lags of monetary policy, get your instant gratification by command economy style controls. Western statism will continue to crush output gaps by creating fake economic growth through leveraged speculation and reducing unemployment rates until sustained wage growth materializes. We've seen this unfold in the US where the jobless rate has fallen to around 3.5% and labor costs have gradually increased since 2010. When this inevitably feeds into consumer price inflation, the central bankers will avoid the reckoning by claiming we have to make up for past inflation misses by running an elongated period of above trend inflation. And we're seeing this narrative already playing out in the US where the Fed asserts that long-term inflation expectations have been undermined by the post-crisis years in which it has slightly undershot its 2% target. But as Stanley Druckenmiller has counted, missing an arbitrary 2% inflation target by a small fraction of a percentage point does not rationalize the cheapest money in human history nor unprecedented market interventions. In the name of avoiding capitalism's creative destruction, the central bankers are unwittingly removing an essential driver of our prosperity. What are you thinking is? Yes, Chris, I agree. We are more likely mid-cycle than late-cycle because output gaps still exist, inflation remains subdued, and it will take unacceptably high inflation to force interest rates up to the levels required to destroy the hordes of zombie companies that are created by near-zero interest policies. And, you know, you've written about this before in the AFR. As we observed in 2018, this will likely be a case of two steps forward, one step back. A bout of wage inflation pushing long-term risk-free rates higher, markets then freaking out, followed by more extreme policy stimulus, which will feed back into higher inflation, and then another iteration of this cycle until we get the quantum of living cost pressures needed to force an existential choice between statism and capitalism. And this will probably be the source of the next great financial crisis, you know, Australia's first recession since 1991. A catastrophic drop in local house prices, you know, likely two to three times worse than anything we've experienced. Huge write downs in public and private debt and potential civil wars. Once the fake prosperity is recognized for what it is, uh, unelected central bankers junking democratic market forces in the name of picking personal winners, the public will demand extreme change. In the meantime, ride the man-made wave and make some money. Now, Chris, you got some interesting feedback on your analysis of the dangerous decade that lies in wait, didn't you? Yeah, I did, Yingers. Uh, ben Pronk, the brilliant former commanding officer of the SAS Regiment, who has managed numerous counter-terrorist combat missions, sent me an email following our publication of that work on the dangerous decade. And Pronk, who now runs a global crisis response agency called Metal Group, said he, quote, found the parallels between anti-aging technology, China's situation, 
and unconventional monetary policy very interesting. I want to um, actually quote his analysis in full because it is exactly the sort of unconventional thinking that I think we should try to embed in our portfolios. So Pronk wrote, quote, it seems that we are becoming increasingly reluctant to let things die the way nature or the markets or great power shifts has traditionally intended, which definitely puts us into uncharted territory in a whole bunch of areas. And he continued, as you identified, I'd agree that any one of these things could serve as a catalyst to intra and interstate conflict from a military perspective. I find it fascinating that since the end of World War II and the advent of nuclear weapons, we've had a period of limited and discretionary conflicts, none of which have come close to being pursued to a total end. And again, Pronky goes on, things get super interesting when the drivers for conflict become less discretionary than they have been for the last 75 years. And here he's talking about, quote, access to water is an example of something that could drive a nation towards extreme actions, which in a nuclear age gets pretty messy. Pronk also says, quote, the rise of artificial intelligence in military applications is another interesting area. We've so far managed to keep humans in the kill chain of armed drones, which appeals to our ethical ideals and works fine when the bad guys tech wouldn't have been out of place on the Korean battlefield. But what happens when the bad guys get sophisticated armed drones and aren't afraid to delegate weapons release to a bot or employ autonomous swarming technology? He's talking about swarming drones. And Pron goes on, a human pilot sitting in a connex outside of Las Vegas isn't going to have the capability to identify, interpret, and engage appropriately. So us good guys are likely going to be forced to match this by empowering our drones with lethal decision-making authority. I try to avoid the Skynet cliches, but it does start to look pretty similar, exclamation mark. And then finally he said, against this backdrop, it wouldn't take anything more than a Franz Ferdinand style miscalculation to kick things off. Now, literally a couple of days later, we um, ostensibly had uh, said mis miscalculation. We had the Iranians, well, firstly, the you know, capricious and mercurial president, uh, Donald Trump, decided to liquidate the second most senior government official in Iran uh, as he was leaving Baghdad airport. And then the Iranians responded with no less than 16 ballistic missiles that successfully landed at two US bases in Iraq. They fired 22, 16 landed. Uh, we took a lot of advice from military and intelligence experts around the world. At this time, we actually put on a 25% a uh, hedge against World War III effectively on our portfolios. And for a moment there, it looked very, very dicey indeed. Um, but thankfully, things have worked out uh, somewhat more providentially. Um, no doubt the November 2020 US presidential election playing a very, very big part. Thanks, Chris. Now, I want to move on to talk about our research on the rise of zombie companies. So our thesis here is simple. Capitalism is dying and the myopic public policy statism that is replacing it is breeding a new wave of zombie companies that cannot survive in a normalized interest rate world. These zombies have loaded up on debt. They can only just service at the lowest recorded interest rates in modern human history. And when we first published this zombie research, we were somewhat surprised by the attention it garnered. 
We roll out different elements of our quant analysis every so often, and ordinarily this stuff flies through to the keeper. But it was evident that there was a visceral interest in who the zombies actually are, and we got numerous requests to reveal the names. We've recently had our data scientists update those numbers and also extend the definition of what a zombie is. The first, broader measure, requires a zombie to have been listed on the ASX for more than 10 years and to have an interest coverage ratio that is less than one for three consecutive years, where that ratio, otherwise known as the ICR, is defined as the ratio of earnings before interest and tax, EBIT, to the interest repayments on the company's debt. A second narrower measure adds the requirement that the zombie also has very low growth potential, with a ratio of the company's market value of its assets to their replacement cost, proxied by Tobin's Q, that is less than the median of their industry sector. This approach replicates the methodology developed by Ryan Banerjee and Boris Hoffman at the Bank for International Settlements in 2018. Tobin's Q is calculated as the sum of the market value of the company's assets and liabilities divided by the sum of the book value of its equity and debt. Our quants have also added a few new proprietary filters to further improve the accuracy of our analysis. Interestingly, our results for Australia are almost identical in terms of both the directional trend and the actual share of zombies to the BIS's findings for developed countries, which suggests that the rise of zombies is actually a global phenomenon. Chris, can you talk us through them? Yeah, sure, Yingers. Um, we found that almost 15% of all ASX stocks are currently zombies based on our broader definition. And that shrinks to about 7.5% if we impose the extra requirement of low expected growth. Crucially, these shares are both rising fast. And the number of observed zombies on both definitions has increased by 50% since 2010. The emergence of an expanding cohort of zombies casts into sharp relief the trade-offs of hyper-stimulatory monetary policy. As the BIS notes, reducing interest rates boosts employment and investment and economic growth in the short term. But to the extent that this is generating fake growth and capitalism's creative destruction is being thwarted by allowing bad businesses to survive when they would otherwise die, central banks could be undermining future productivity and growth outcomes. Or in the words of the BIS's authors, quote, the survival of zombie firms may crowd out investment in and employment at healthy firms. And they say, our findings confirm these effects for more countries and a longer period. Now, Ying Yi, we actually got really interesting feedback on this research from Dan Andrews, who's the Commonwealth Treasury's chief advisor on macro modelling. And he sent me an email and he wrote, quote, your results are consistent with a new paper of mine that shows an increasing survival of low productivity incumbents from around 2012. Andrews and his Treasury co-author, David Hansale, find that Australia fares well on a global basis in terms of its ability to ensure productive companies attract more human talent than less productive peers. And they show that because of this, labour productivity is 20% higher than it would be if workers were randomly distributed. The bad news is that the speed with which Uh, high productivity companies expand and low productivity businesses contract has actually been slowing 
over time and this this dysfunction has been especially evident since 2009. The Treasury economists also verify our data scientists research documenting a growing number of zombies by presenting quote evidence that low productivity incumbent firms increasingly likely to survive. In fact, the rising influence of zombie-like companies accounts for about one quarter of the slowdown in overall Australian productivity growth since 2012. And since higher productivity firms pay higher wages, the zombification of industry, according to Treasury, quote, provides a new insight into why aggregate wage growth over recent years has been weaker than expected. And Chris, another thing you recently wrote about was a fascinating lunch that you had with one of the largest hedge fund managers in the world. Can you please tell us about that? Uh, yeah, sure, Ying is. Uh, as much as I might come across to Martin Place's Mandarins, aka the RBA, as I'm guessing arrogant, supercilious, callous, and any other adjectives that describe a megalomaniacal fund manager, one of my greatest passions is actually engaging with and trying to understand people. Uh, These interactions do, after all, define our human experience. I often tell the 22 executives who work for me that they're family. Uh, If the typical Aussie toiler works a 12-hour day and sleeps six hours, then they spend almost half their waking life with their teammates. If these folks are not akin to family, you're probably with the wrong tribe. As uh, the famous tape-reading hedge fund manager Stevie Cohen might quip, we live to work, not work to live, right? Well, tell that to an entitled millennial. The vagaries of the human condition, you know, consciousness, origin, and reasons for being are endlessly fascinating. And as you noted, while I, uh, one recent example for me was a lunch I had while traversing between uh, the north and south coast of Sydney after Christmas. Now, although discretion prevents dissemination of too much detail, suffice it to say it was like watching my own very special, perhaps peculiar episode of the hit TV series Billions. And my lunchtime counterparty was, until quite recently, actually the biggest hedge fund manager on earth, and he really was strayed from central casting. I've got to be diplomatic in what I say in that context, but one enduring impression was how clearly our life's work actively shapes brain function, or more specifically, our mosaic of interneuronal connections. This guy has been a short-term trader his entire life, and speaking to him was similar to conversations with another tape-reading buddy of mine. Both come across like they've been strapped to Xboxes for the last 25 years of their life, sublime yet raw processes of real-time information, with the consequence that they are very good reflexive decision makers. It does not, however, necessarily mean that every engagement is, is an especially pleasant one, or for that matter, tactful experience. Human interactions are treated like a sequence of trades with a staccato and binary yes-no pattern. They are so conditioned to having to make rapid-fire black-and-white decisions that this style inevitably bleeds into their non-work behaviours. You are always right or wrong with few shades of grey. It is difficult for these characters not to provide an ostensibly strong opinion on any subject because that is precisely what they are forced to do every second of the day. And yet that view can flip 180 degrees with the past position instantly erased from memory if new contradictory data emerges. Naturally, the marketing folks try to iron this out. I could see that ephemeral influence on this billionaire as he struggled to suppress his more explosive expressions, but it was a physical battle to keep that tongue in check. 
Yes, Chris. So I actually used to trade with that hedge fund billionaire and I know exactly what you mean. Uh, And actually, this brings this episode to a close. We will be back in a month's time. So, Chris, any closing comments? Yeah, interesting question. Ying Yi, January so far has been a strong month. Markets are ripping, credit spreads are tightening up. We've obviously seen the markets start to fade. Some of those tail risks, be it you know, uh, Middle Eastern geopolitical risks, Brexit, uh, so on and so forth. We've uh, seen, I think, a net increase in FUM of about $600 million since November. So that's been pleasing. Then I guess finally, we've just had the jobs data released. The unemployment rate has dropped to 5.1%. Strong jobs growth, very good result presumably takes out February as a possibility for a RBA rate cut. I think the probability of a Feb cut has fallen to about 25%. So I think the RBA will be on the sidelines. We've obviously got some extra fiscal stimulus from SCOMO uh, as a result of the shocking fires. So it's just um, for us business as usual, trading all day, every day, trying to grind out every single basis point that counts. This podcast does not provide financial advice. It is not an invitation to invest in any financial product and the information in it should not be relied on for any decisions. All views expressed represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or a recommendation and should not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit the moneysmart.gov.au website to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.